I want to say thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart to St. Sophia's providing me with this beautiful backdrop for our last Sunday school today. <laughs> I thought about putting the palm trees right here. <laughs> yes. That's right. So today, not only are we concluding our our Sunday school sessions before our summer break, but we are going to conclude the epistle of 1 Peter. Um, As always with the apostles, all of them seem, if you've noticed when you read their epistles, they tend to wrap things up, right? When, they, when they're finished, they're, they're, they're giving these final exhortations, wrapping up the message, blessing them with the grace, the very divine power of God to continue in the faith toward their salvation and being vessels for the salvation of the world. It's no different with First Peter. And so we're going to have a look at this beginning in First Peter chapter 4 um, and going through chapter 5 is both the wrap-up and the final blessing of the Apostle St. Peter. And remember again to those he's writing to who are in the middle of persecution from uh, Rome, particularly the beginnings of it. Some are in prison, some are already being martyred. He has already been imprisoned himself. And so he's wrapping up this epistle to them and giving them his blessing. So as 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Please. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And if you notice how he begins uh, this, this section as he's wrapping things up, he's been preaching and teaching us all these things, instructing us how to live. And then he comes to the point where he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Makes a very big point there. Why do you think that he says something like that? In, think of who he's writing to. Why would he bring to them the remembrance, but the end of all things is at hand? Any thoughts? It's not a trick question, just just really. At the end of all things is at hand. Why would he bring this statement in as he begins this, this portion of his teaching to the church? Well, they were being persecuted. They were being persecuted. He wanted just to know that things things will be okay. Yes. The end is at hand. And for them, quite frankly, it could be very literally. You know, it could be very literally that the end of all things, their life in this blink of an eye life that we have upon this earth, the end of all things could be at hand. Okay? So he is stressing that. Now we know that that this was proclaimed to many through by the apostles. And a lot of times what they talk about, because remember what Jesus says, no one knows the time. No one, not even him. 
Only the Father knows the time of the end of all days. Therefore, all apostles in their epistles tend to remind us of this fact and that we are to live like that parable of the virgins constantly with oil in our lamp. We do not know the last day. We do not know our last breath. And for those in Rome, they definitely didn't know. This could be that day for many of them who are reading this because persecution was upon them. Okay, having made the... I'm sorry, go ahead, Marilyn. Considering that these epistles are letters to the Jews. No, no not this one. Okay. Remember, this one, this one is to the, to the Hebrews, was to the Jews who had converted. This was a letter to the Gentiles in that uh, northeastern Mediterranean area. Okay, but would it not mean the end of the world? I mean, they have converted. <clears throat> so would it not be... Uh, a letter to them saying that your old life has ceased and you're renewed in Christ? Well, it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. Um, hmm. I'll let that roll around a little bit. That's one, I'll tell you this, it's one that I have not seen, like when I look at, at the fathers and the broad stroke that they paint, they, are, they tend to stick to those two possibilities of A, we're living in the last age, and we don't know the day, therefore we live in such a way in holiness, right? Or to those being persecuted, the last day could be upon them, for them, okay? But let me look some stuff up on that one, it's a good thought. Having said... And this is what we need to note about this. Having said that the end of all things is at hand, that phrase, you must know to the listener, stresses the importance of what he is about to say. If he starts this portion of his teaching saying, the end of all things is at hand, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like saying, my friends, I'm about to tell you something that is very critical to your life in Christ. Something very critical to your salvation. Give ears. Listen. Let us attend, as our Eastern Rite brothers and sisters would say, right? Wisdom. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, I'm going to skip over that for one second. And the only reason is this, because we're going to find it in chapter 5, where we have that the one that we're more accustomed in some of our prayer uh, services to experience is be sober, be vigilant. For your enemy, that's where it comes from, from 1 Peter. So I'm going to cover what it means to live and be serious and watchful in prayers then. So I'm going to save that. But the next thing he says, he says this. But above all things. But above all things. Have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Have fervent love for one another. And I love that, that phrase, above all things. Okay, the end is at hand. So Christians, above all things, have fervent love one for another. That word fervent I want to address. You know, Deacon mentioned the word, uh, a word that has double meaning in Greek in both of them. It's not you choose the meaning, they're both accurate. Well, this word fervent... In Greek is the same type of thing. It is a dual meaning and meaning, and both of them are intended in the statement. Fervent means this. It means to have a very intentional, that's the one meaning, and enduring love for one another. 
have an intentional and an enduring love for one another. That word enduring, it could also be translated into English, long-suffering love for one another. Somebody describe to me how the, why is it that the love of God is considered long-suffering? We see this in Scripture and fathers speak about it. What does it mean that the love of God is long-suffering? Never gives up. On Never what? Stops. On Never God. stops. <laughs> on us. It's unending. Absolutely. What else? It is patient with us. Good. Keep going. There's plenty more. And we have to be obedient. So that's, for me, for sure, uh, that can be long suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Give me some more about how God's love is long suffering. It is unending. It is limitless, we've heard. It is patient with us. We continue to disappoint. We continue to disappoint. And what does God do? Remain steadfast in His love, unchanging by our behaviors. Right? And mercy. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard to think about because we think of the human emotion where we suffer, we feel pain. But God does not have a, a change of His being or outlook. We don't function like that in our natural. It's impossible in our natural. We have to realize that we are dirty. We are dirty. And love purifies us. God's love purifies us. We don't always like to think of ourselves as dirty. But if you're not dirty, there's no reason for purification. Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I think we forget God. You know, we forget God throughout the day. We forget Him. You know, He never forgets us. But, you know, we get distracted by things daily and really do not think about God. You know, we're not always thinking about God. Not always. We have to admit that, you know. And yet He is what? I think He's always remembering us. Fixed on us. Right there, yeah. Fixed on us. But, I mean, you know, you get ready to eat and you don't even thank God for your eating. It's the truth. I typically eat half of the crust off my sandwich sometimes and then say, oh, wait a minute. It happens. Yeah. I need to say this in a rather anecdotal way. I used to work for a Christian newspaper. And every week we would ask a different pastor to write something on a scripture. You know, his interpretation. And I would write a letter and say, this is your opportunity to interpret God's Word. But I misspelled interpret, and I put interrupt. We <laughs> <laughs> interrupt God's Word. No autocorrect for that one, is there? Doggone it. <laughs> How long did it take me? <laughs> Not long. I could nice. receive the letter. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hearing all these things. From the human perspective, and that's the way we must address it and look at it, that, that we, have, we have great human failings when it comes to living out love in all relationships that we have. God does not. Because, again, we go in and out of love sometimes, partly because I don't think we understand what love is or dedicate ourselves to it sometimes appropriately. But we go in and out of love. How can the God who is love go in and out of himself? The love of God 
looks at us and we, we, we again and again become adulterous to Him and pursue other things that we love more. Karen said it best, you know, you know, adultery comes in all kinds of different levels when you think about it. You know, Karen was mentioning that distractions that take us away from God. You know, Paul says pray without ceasing. So even in the minuscule things in our lives that would tend to cause us distraction, what is he telling us? Lean in. Remember the Lord your God. Even if it's in the recesses of your mind as you're going about your business, stay in communion with Him. But we don't do that. We go in and out. We disappoint one another. We fail the Lord our God. We are disobedient to the Lord our God. And it never rocks Him. It never shakes Him. It never changes His disposition towards those He longs to save and be with forever. That is the long-suffering of God. Now, put all of that into what he's saying. And St. Peter is saying, above all things, since the end is at hand, above all things, you love one another with that same long-suffering. Something absolutely impossible in our humanity alone. However, we are not alone. We have been infused with God Himself by the Holy Spirit and we have the profound grace of God to become like Him. Therefore, He is pressing us to love one another, to endure with one another, to be patient with one another when we dash against each other and to not get rocked by that, but to stay consistent. And the second part of that was be intentional. That love is intentional. You've heard me quote this before, but back in the 70s, it really is a truth. There was an old Christian song written, Love is not a feeling, it is an act of the will. That's what the intentional part is. That I set myself to love you. I set myself to love my wife, my children, my family, the body of Christ that is even so much more my family, you see, as we have been made one by Christ. So I must be intentional and set my will because God gave us this blessed thing in the garden that was like Him, that was in His image, a will. And His whole purpose of setting us in the garden was to teach us that that will would be joined to His, that we become like Him in all things. And therefore, it's no different here in the call to love. So he says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. But then he says this, love covers, for love covers a multitude of sins. And I found two of the church fathers, there's a lot of them that write about this, and it's almost all in two categories of thought. And these two present those categories. So let me just give you that. Love covers a multitude of sins. St. Leo the Great. Nothing is stronger against the wiles of the devil, dearly beloved, than the kindness, mercy, and generosity of love, through which every sin is either avoided or conquered. What I love about that is it makes the statement that if we have set ourselves to love... Now remember what fulfills the commandments. We hear it every Mass. Love God and love who? Both. Both. Love God, love neighbor. If we have set ourselves and walk in the grace that we have been given to love God and love neighbor, a sin cannot occur. Think about that. 
if we are loving God, offering ourselves in that great response to Him, living in and from the union that we've been granted Him, and we are attentive of that, no sin. It's when we get our eyes off. It's when we get distracted. It's when we get tempted away from that sin occurs. And the same thing is true with one another. If I'm loving you, I'm not coveting you. You see? If I'm loving you, I'm seeking your blessing. And that's what St. Leo is talking about. I love how he says it. That nothing is stronger against the wiles of the devil than the kindness, mercy, and generosity of love. Through which every sin is either avoided or overcome, conquered. The second thought about that, and it shouldn't surprise us, uh, St. Bede says it very well. There are many good works which alleviate sins. But Peter speaks especially of love, because it is by love that we forgive those who trespass against us, something which is righteous in the sight of God, and in full agreement with the godliness which has been given to us. So on the one hand, if I am loving you, like St. Leo said, I'm not sinning. If I'm loving God, loving you... And I'm focused on that. It keeps me avoiding sin or conquering it. Second is this. Not if, but when we offend one another. Love forgives. But there's a reciprocation we never get away from that comes from precisely when our Lord Jesus Christ, when asked by His disciples, how do we pray? How do we pray to God? And in there it says, forgive us our trespasses. As we. There are days you might not like, and there are days I know I don't like praying that. It should bring a little discomfort if we are harboring something against our brother and sister or against a family member. Lord, forgive me in the very same way as I'm dealing with my brother and sister in Christ, my family member. If I forgive, it covers a multitude of sins. And that's what St. Peter is getting at. It's, I just find it fascinating that in the face of persecution and very potential death, the first thing he comes up with is love. doesn't surprise me. It just amazes me that he brings home what is the heartbeat of the Christian and what is the heartbeat of the gospel itself because it is who God is. And we're called and saved to become like Him. Second thing he says, covering love, he now says, be hospitable to one another, but then he doesn't stop there, without grumbling. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So hospitable means I tend to your needs. I welcome you, love you, and I tend to the needs that you have. I wash your feet. Yes. I tend to your needs, but to do so without grumbling demands this. It demands that I'm not in the center of the universe when I'm doing it. It demands that I am not considering myself before you. Because if I'm considering myself before you, I guarantee you that at some point in my hospitality, I'm going to grow weary of that and I'm going to start grumbling. And I'd like to really go and be on my own here, Lord. We do this. Think about that. We do this. In fact, do you remember the scripture that says, Never tire of doing good. Never tire of doing good. I'm going to tell you as a priest, 
that I probably hit two to three points in every year where I'm tired of doing good. We're all, yes? But the next part says we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. That's right. The promise. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. The promise followed up on it. And the reality is, when I get to a point kind of like I am right now, we've been through a lot of stuff this year so far. Lent, Holy Week, a lot of stuff going on. I got a lot of stuff coming up to plan. In my natural person, I get tired, I get weary, and when I get tired and I get weary, ask my wife, I get grumpy. first thing that comes to my mind as I'm in these seasons is that scripture, never tire of doing good. And again, it's because of the promise that's on the other side of it. And God always gives grace if we'll hang in there. And He always gives breaks and refreshment in their season as He knows that we need. So be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And then He comes on this longer dialogue, beginning in verse 10, of how to minister one to another. Verse 10 tells us this. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, the very words of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. He says every believer, each one has received a gift. That word gift comes from the very root of the word grace, charism. Charism. The word charism means simply this, grace-filled power beyond our humanity to express the divine. Because nothing in our humanity can do it on its own. And so God gives us grace in our lives so that Christ may be expressed through us to one another. And each one has received this. Therefore, minister that gift to one another. If you have received it, then use it for the benefit of the body. In fact, the same word that St. Peter uses for gift here, St. Paul uses for gift in Romans 12 and over in 1 Corinthians. Let me remind you of what he says. And I'm going, to, I'm going to exchange the word because I'm going to be honest with you. You've heard me say this. I do not like the translation into English, gift. It's like a blessed Santa Claus given a present that conjures up in the mind. It is more than that. It certainly is a gift from God that we can't deserve or earn. But the reality is it is divine power given to the Christian to live as Christ among one another. So I'm going to change the word to charism, using that Greek word. St. Paul says in Romans 12, having, the, having then charisms differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in, portion, in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. How many of you realize that the, the, one of the charism, the expressions of God by grace, is mercy itself? So if you have that, show mercy. Demonstrate the mercy of God one to another. Okay? 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way. 
There are a diversity of charisms, but the same Spirit. There are differences in ministry, but it's the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to other interpretations of those tongues. But one the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He will. You remember how we have talked about the body of Christ. We've used the example of, of a great mosaic where each living stone is just one of those tiny tiles that gets put into place. And if you were to look at just that one tiny tile, you would not see the completed image of God. But you take all of those tiles and you unite them together in order. And all of those tiles put together show forth God Himself. That's what the charisms are. That's their function, the grace of God giving to each. And notice, some of them are very miraculous charisms. Some of them are very serving, day-to-day charisms. And none of them are greater than the other. They are all necessary so that as we function together in the body that God is demonstrated, manifest for the blessing of all. So let me ask you a question. That being the truth, as both Saints Peter and Paul teach us, why is it that we struggle to experience them at times? Thoughts. I don't have, I don't have, I have thoughts of an answer, but I just, I'm curious. What y'all think? So part of it could be a desire on our part? Right, I mean, God's love is enlightens us, but we don't always want to be enlightened at a specific time. Everybody okay. wants a Savior, nobody wants a Lord. It's a very good statement. Everybody wants a Savior, sometimes we don't want a Lord. Yeah, yeah. I think, Father, that, uh, you know, what, once we, we are uh, in Christ, and we know that we are, and we know what our job is, I think we're hesitant to take it on. Mm-hmm. So I think we're hesitant to move forward to do more because part of our human fear says to us, I don't know that I can do more. But with God, I can. Yeah. But maybe not. You just hit on a good point. You remember when, uh, in my mind, when you were saying that, went right to when Moses had led Israel to the Jordan River the first time. And they sent out the spies. And they come back, and only Joshua and Caleb said, because we have the Lord is with us, we can do all these things. They saw what was before them. But most of them came back and reported what you're saying. They came back saying, we looked, and we saw these mighty armies and mighty men we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. So how we see ourselves and perceive ourselves, which when we do, when we see, granted, all of us are weak, but so were they. Were they not weak when they were in bondage in Egypt? 
and look at the mighty works of God on their behalf, right? It was God who acted on their behalf. But we get distracted with ourselves and our weaknesses and our fears. It's hard to take that first step. Good, good. That's, yeah, yeah. Other thoughts? Tired. Tired. I'm just tired. Very valid. Shifts us. You should not just do anything waiting for that thing to hit, but you've got to know that those things do hit, and yeah. then you've got to make a decision to take care of those things. Hang on, hang on to that. I'm going to come back to that. I, no, no, the, yeah, I get that, and I know yeah. exactly what you're saying. That, yeah, it's kind great. of going with what you're saying. I mean, I think part of it is we have to be honest with ourselves, like really look at ourselves for who we really are, like you said, we're simple. And be honest about that and not just think, oh, I can handle this, or I'm doing great, or I'm doing all these great things at church, or whatever it is. I mean, have mercy on me as sinner. I'm always in need of redemption and um, healing. All of that. And and just being aware of the fact that I need to keep looking inward to see where the brokenness is and let God work on that. And, and be aware. I think that's where, when you're allowing him to do those things in his Holy Spirit, you know, suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, I didn't mean to do any of these other charisms. I didn't mean for my gifts to come out here, but just it just happened because you were living in the Spirit. And you know, that's the, I want to take both those thoughts for a second, okay? Because this is something that, that, as I looked at this throughout the week, just examining and thinking through the answer to the question I'm posing to all of you. Part of the problem is how we differentiate things in our minds. Tasks, whether it's job tasks or church tasks or whatever, and these deeply spiritual things that we're, that we're hearing from the apostles that is a purpose-filled uh, distribution of power by God into His people. And we sit, we often do this, and we... we we, set, we, we have, it's almost like separate lives. We think about this this way, and we think about this this way in the more spiritual way. You ever seen a Roman aqueduct, right? 
When the aqueduct is lined up and it's designed to where it's slightly downhill to carry the water, the water has a source. And everywhere that that water goes, it's not disrupted. But if, if somebody were to knock a piece of the aqueduct to the left, all of a sudden that water can't continue to flow so purely and perfectly to fulfill its purpose. I think a lot of our struggles in this area or why we don't see as much of these things come down to each one of us. The question is, are we living in and from the union that we have been granted with God? Because here's the deal. If we are living in and from that absolute relational union, where we're growing to get beyond just one prayer a day or the hours of prayer a day, but we are living in union with the help of all that and by grace, the more we do that, all this becomes natural. Like what Korea was saying just a minute ago, that she didn't notice after a while when she started focusing on the right things, it seemed like God was... was, uh, using her, so to speak, for the benefit of others more than when she was detached from that. Does that make sense? Everything of life comes from union with God. Everything eternal comes from union with God. And I tell you this, that all of those who press in to live more and more, like like Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that desperation to be with God and in Him. God's faithful to do whatever He will through vessels that He's placed Himself within. The question is, are we lined up like the aqueduct where living water can flow from the source through us? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think also if you, uh, the times that you are able to live like that, you also realize that things that you take for granted other people see as gifts and I think that sometimes other people don't realize that they are a gift to you just by the way they are because they are at peace that's the truth, that's a great statement I I know what you mean Mm -hmm. absolutely very good and again remember this This is of such importance in who we are as the body of Christ and how God intends to glorify Himself through us that St. Peter is mentioning this on the tail end of at the end of all things. Now that you are at the end of all things. So something we need to consider in our lives. Good thoughts. Thank you very much. Alright, he's going to move now to turn once again bringing a conclusion to his thoughts on suffering for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has 1 Peter 4 verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. 
Nobody knows anything about that. Let's skip on. Go ahead. <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly, the sinner, appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good, as to a faithful Creator. Okay, so the whole first part of that, we, we've discussed this before, so I'm just going to cover it very lightly, very quickly, because uh, so this is something St. Peter has said before, that those who are suffering for the sake and for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ are ever so blessed because they are entering into the very suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and joined to Him in that. And we know that what Revelation says about those who offer up their very lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are the ones calling out from underneath that blessed altar in heaven. Okay? And so they are blessed when they partake in Christ's sufferings. But then he says something interesting. He says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Not with the world, but with the house of God. I looked up a number of the church fathers speaking to this, and they're kind of all fairly in the same ballpark with what they helped in understanding is this, is that think about where these people are at the potential end for them. And persecution presents a great testing of the faith for Christians. Remember the whole book of Hebrews was written to those Jewish converted Christians who were struggling and forsaking the name of Christ. And he was calling them back to repentance so that they would glorify Christ, that they might be glorified by Christ. Persecution brings a great testing of the faith. If you think about it, there's no greater time when your mortality is right in front of you with this kind of suffering. And the question comes about, will we offer ourselves to God living out the belief that He is the resurrection and the life, or will we deny Him? That's what the believers were faced with. Now, God wasn't making the persecution happen, but the persecution presented a judgment coming to the believers before the world in this moment. But here's the key. Always remember something. If I throw out the word judgment to a mob scene out there of a bunch of people, they're going to have negative things going through their mind. We take the word judgment and we treat it negatively, as if it is a negative... Don't judge me. Well, what if I want to say you look nice today? What if I want to say you did a good job today? You don't want me to judge you? Judgment is neither positive or negative. It flows from the justice of God. And this statement is what St. Peter wants these believers to hear should they be martyred, should they be even imprisoned, tortured. He wants them to hear this judgment. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. You see? He doesn't want to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Judgment is either way. And when we have our mortality faced in front of us like they did in this persecution, this is what the fathers talk about. Judgment is beginning right then with the house of God. And how much more woe to them that are outside of it is what St. Peter is saying. Okay, very quickly, we are, I don't want to keep us too long today with everything going on. We've had some great discussion, which put us a little bit behind. Who has 1 Peter chapters? One, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4? Before you, Ruth, quick, I'm sorry. Before you read that, St. Peter is now going to conclude by giving instructions to the overseers of the church and then to those Christians who submit to their oversight. Thank you. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Okay, so to the overseers of all the churches that are over under are going through this persecution. First thing I want to notice this, and I always like to point out the humility of the apostles. Because we look their whole life was. And we know they struggled in their humanity and so on, but there is a humility about them. And Peter's talking, here he is, one of the twelve. Okay, First among equals of the twelve. And he says, the elders, the overseers, presbyters, who are among you, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm one of you. I'm right there with you and I'm one of you. He wants them to oversee the flock, not lording over them with authority, but being an absolute example to them. St. Peter himself is doing this. The Christians saw St. Peter in prison. They would later see him crucified upside down. He led the church. They led the church by example, not strength of hand. Okay? Doesn't mean they didn't have authority. But the best authority, as we see in the very life of Christ, is the Word of God come down and live among us. And St. Peter is saying the same thing to the overseers of the church. He says, minister to them, oversee them through this by your will, serving them, that you may receive a crown of glory that doesn't fade away. 1 Peter 5, 5-11, now the words to those who submit to the authorities. Who has that? Likewise. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your fear upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, so that the spirit of the devil walks about like a roaring lion, lying, seeking whom He may be. Power. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may God, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to give you the glory and the dominion forever and 
All right, let me go through this very quickly for you. He says, submit to your elders. Live under them. This is the role. There to be an example, like Christ was an example, you follow their example. Submit to them. Then he says, and I love this, he steps right in pastorally to what they're dealing with, and that's anxiety. He makes a statement, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That word care are the cares of this world. They are faced with their life going away, all of their possessions being taken, and imprisonment. We've gone through all of that. And therefore, they have a lot of human anxiety going on. And he says this in this phrase. I'm going to try to paint a picture for you because we would do well to remember this in moments or seasons of worry and anxiety. Cast all your cares upon Him. It's as if, if you can get this picture, that you are an overburdened beast of burden. You've been weighed down over what you ought to carry. And the beast is treading through it very weakly. He's worn out because of being overburdened. The the, the idea of casting your care, it's literally throw it upon Christ. Throw all of the burden of the anxiety and that which causes the anxiety. Take it and like you're throwing it, throw it upon Christ who cares for you. He can carry what causes us anxiety. And the reality is, remember this, this is St. Peter really saying the same thing. Is your eye fixed on the storm or is your eye fixed on Christ, the one who walked the waves? Take your anxiety, throw it upon the Lord, and find your peace in Him. That's what he's saying. Then he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood. This idea of being sober and being vigilant, it goes back to what we saw earlier at the first in chapter 4. In prayer... Not just the prayer times. Prayer is communion with God. So in prayer, we are being called to be sober and vigilant, which means we are to be awake and centered in this life. We're called to be wide awake spiritually and very aware what is going on around us spiritually. Not in a way where we're paranoid. Some of us approach it that way. Not in a way of being paranoid, but being watchful and discerning. In fact, listen to the words of St. Augustine regarding this. Who could avoid encountering the teeth of this lion if the lion from the tribe of Judah had not conquered? I love that. I'm going to say that again. Who could avoid encountering the teeth of that lion seeking to devour us if the lion from the tribe of Judah had not conquered him? Therefore be centered, standing on solid foundation, who is Christ. And he concludes, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. What's he calling upon? He's blessing them with the benediction and the grace of God towards their salvation. May he grace you to perfect you, that's theosis and to root you deeply in Himself where you become unmoved by all the things in life that would cause anxiety. 
And those are the words of our blessed patron Saint Peter in his first epistle. Let's stand.